The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everyone. Glad that you could join us. Today's topic is one that um, has really been in the news quite a bit over the summer and and to the present day, and that is the drought that we've experienced here in the U.S. this summer. It's been extensive. It's been intense, and we're going to be joined today by a guest who is looking at a variety of issues when it comes to water-related climate changes throughout the country, and in particular, what state governments can do to become more drought-resilient if these events take place more regularly and more intensely over the coming decades, what can we do uh, to be ready for that? And our guest today is Steve Fleischle. He is the Director of Water and Climate for the Natural Resources Defense Council. And we're so glad that you could join us today, Steve. Welcome to Go Green Radio. Thanks so much, Jill. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, let's begin by talking about this summer's drought in the U.S. Um, what made it so unique? Well, yeah, this summer's drought has really been rather remarkable in a whole number of ways. In fact, the first half of 2012's historic drought saw more than 80% of the country in abnormally dry or drought conditions by mid-July, and it served up the largest drought declaration in the U.S. in over 50 years. And the National Climate Data Center, the government body that's charged with keeping track of weather data, announced that 55% of the contiguous U.S. was in a state of moderate to extreme drought at the end of June of this year, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture reports that almost half of the entire nation's counties have been declared drought disaster areas because of the drought. And we can't just for, can't just think about the drought. We've got to think about the record-breaking heat as well that contributed to that and the kind of spikes we've seen around the country this summer and the, the hottest January to June ever recorded in the continental U.S. And the 12 consecutive months between July 2011 and June 2012 were the warmest 12 months on record. And more than 22,000 daily high temperature records were tied or broken this last year. Um, so there are really significant ramifications from this drought this year. Um, it is really a remarkable situation. You know, and let's talk about some of those ramifications. When we were seeing the drought covered on the news, a lot of times it was accompanied by images of withering crops. That was sort of the big story. Talk about the, there's quite a wide variety of ramifications of damaged crops due to a drought. So talk about some of the upshot of, of those withered crops that we were seeing in the media. Yeah, well, there's no question that the changes in climate, precipitation, and water availability have grave implications for agricultural production. Drought can spark changes in crop yield, variations in plant tolerance, the prevalence of crop disease, weeds, insects, and pests, and ultimately drive up the price of food. Drought threatens our water and food supplies and is driving up the cost of everything from corn to milk, and it will over the coming 
the coming year, really. And while getting into the details of climate change and, and crop production is a bit outside my expertise, we do know that the potential scale of disruption can be appreciated simply based on the value of the top crops produced in the country, in the counties where the risks of future water shortages arise. And just a few weeks ago, Oxfam released a report called Extreme Weather, Extreme Prices, and it projects how food prices, future food prices will skyrocket as if we ignore severe weather implications and the shocks they could have on global food systems. The average price of staples like corn, um, this is according to Oxfam, could more than double in the next 20 years worldwide compared to the 2010 numbers with, with changes in temperature and precipitation accounting for maybe half of that price increase. And so corn is the main ingredient in feed for cattle, chickens, and pigs. So increases in the cost of animal feed will subsequently result in higher prices for meat as well. And corn is a key ingredient in many of the packaged foods we eat in this country. Um, so we could see food prices increase in those, in those areas as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and I saw a report just recently that said that um, some of the, the food price increases that were initially being projected for this drought might be mitigated by some of the um, crops that we had in storage. But if this mm-hmm. becomes a perpetual, you know, summer over summer situation, we aren't going to have those those stores, correct? I mean... Well, that, that, that's exactly right. Um, and, and sometimes the cost implications aren't felt for maybe a year um, mm-hmm. in the system. So we might not see food, price, food prices rise until next summer, um, but it could be from this summer's drought. Right, right. There's a long-term impact. And speaking of that long-term impact, you know, a lot of people don't realize that a drought doesn't just hurt the crops that were growing in the soil, but it hurts the soil as well. And, um, you know, topsoil is sort of a living ecosystem. It's not just dirt. Um, can you talk about the long-term harm that drought conditions or sustained drought conditions could have on our nation's topsoil and why that matters so much? Yeah, well, as you've noted, topsoil is really a critical component um, of our ecosystem, and it's it's really that top eight inches or so. That's where all the nutrients are for plants for our food to grow. Um, and we saw enormous impacts on topsoil back in the in the Dust Bowl era from the 1930s. And you know, farmers watched as hot, dry winds blew across their fields and withered their crops. Um, fortunately, we've learned a lot from that situation. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture set up the Soil Conservation Service, um, which is now the Natural Resource Conservation Service, and they developed programs to help farmers adopt practices that would hold soil in place so we don't lose that critical topsoil. They taught farmers about things like tree stands and terraces and using fences to reduce losses um, from winds. Um, Then in the 1980s, uh, the Federal Farm Bill established a program, a series of conservation compliance measures to help farmers, where in exchange for financial support from the federal government, farmers agreed to undertake certain conservation measures to protect their land from eroding. And so a lot of those things are in place now, and today practices like no-till farming, cover crops, crop diversity are becoming more common. And by taking those steps... Uh, we can protect the topsoil, and even when we have these types of drought conditions, 
we can, you know, the good topsoil holds water better, um, and we can we can use that um, to sustain our crops. And as Hugh Hammond Bennett, who was the original director of the Soil Conservation Service, said more than 75 years ago, by taking care of the land, the land will take care of us. And so mm-hmm. we really need to make that connection with topsoil and how it benefits all of us. Yeah, and I think that that's something that, you know, it's not a sexy topic. It doesn't get a lot of headlines or anything like that. But, I mean, as you mentioned early on, our our plants, our crops are only nutritious if they gain that nutrition from the topsoil. And so if we if we don't take care of that, then uh, it really the, the, the nutritional value of what we grow in the dirt will be diminished tremendously. And I think that's really something that we need to to double down on as we look at these extended periods of, of dry and drought-like weather. You know, besides the impact on agribusiness, which was really front-burner news when the drought hit, droughts impact a lot of other businesses as well. And there are some businesses that rely on water transportation to move their goods, and I know that they were impacted by the drought this year as well. So I'd love for you to talk about some of those scenarios. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. Um, it's not just agriculture that's impacted. And this year we did see um, major major problems on places like the Mississippi River um, where harbors had to shut down and barges ran aground basically because there wasn't enough flow um, in the river to support that river traffic, that river commerce. Um, just this week, in fact, a lock on the river near St. Louis had to be shut down for emergency repairs. 60 vessels and 40 barges were left stranded because of that. Um, you know, and our transportation corridors like the Mississippi River are so vital to our country's economy. They carry so much of uh, our goods and services. Um, and in addition to transportation, the number one user of water in the United States is power plants. And so if there isn't sufficient water in many of these waterways, our power system could be at risk. Um, they take that water in, they use it for cooling water purposes and spit it back out. And some of the largest power plants in the U.S. can use 2 billion gallons of water a day. Um, and if they don't have access to that water, um, they're at jeopardy of, of reduced power output. What kind of power plants are you talking about? Um, I know that a lot of people would say, well, okay, I get why a drought could impact hydropower, but talk about yeah. some of the ways that other power plants, other types of, of energy production use this cooling water. How does that work? Yeah, so the big the big power plants in the country, the nuclear power plants, the coal-burning power plants, the natural gas-fired power plants, um, almost half of them use surface water um, for cooling purposes, and they use what's called once-through cooling. And so they suck in the water, they use it uh, to cool down their condensers and recondense the water uh, in their steam, steam turbines, and then they spit that water, superheated, back out into the environment into those waterways. And the challenge is if they're sucking in that water, and again, um, anywhere from several million gallons a day to several billion gallons a day, if if the river that they rely on, and many of these are river-based, some are coastal and ocean water-based, but if the river they rely on doesn't have enough flow, they might have to curtail their operations because they can't recondense that water. They can't cool down their systems internally. Um, And also, if the water that flows by is too warm, it won't serve that cooling function. So there's there's sort of a double whammy there uh, with power plants in the U.S. 
Mm-hmm. Well, this leads to the next question I have because, you know, it's pretty evident why farmers would be concerned with drought. Now we're talking about uh, those who rely on river water transportation to move their goods for their businesses and power plants and why they would be concerned with drought conditions. But let's talk about all the different ways that everyday people who are not farmers or do not have a business connection to water transportation, how does a large-scale drought impact their daily lives? Uh, and, and let's cover a wide range of scenarios. Well, well as... As you've already alluded to, the price of food will be one way that a drought impacts just the average person. Uh, you know, they're going to see um, increased food prices, which, you know, in this economy is the last, pe- last thing people really need to see. Um, so everybody will feel that, um, unfortunately. Um, the drought has impacted many communities because of wildfires and how drought can increase fire risk. And in Colorado this year, we saw more than 700 homes destroyed because of drought. Um, we've got the agricultural impacts. We've got the power plant impacts that we mentioned. Um, those are really the big ones that I that I would put on the table in terms of how drought impacts us. And then there's the environmental impacts and the, the effect that drought can have on species, um, on habitat, um, and and the ability of that habitat to sustain species, um, reduced air quality, um, and human health impacts um, mm-hmm. associated with that. Now, when you talk about uh, air pollution or, or air quality issues related to drought, is that primarily from the wildfires that, that, in, that occur, or is there some other way that drought impacts air quality? Well, certain, certainly the wildfires can impact um, air quality, as mm-hmm. we've seen, and that can impact human health. You know, where there's increased dry winds and particulate matter that's stirred up because of that, um, you can have particulate matter um, in the air and, and lung problems associated with that as well. I see. Well, I'm going to encourage folks to take a look at the Natural Resources Defense Council website while we're on break. Don't close this tab in your web browser. We're going to take a quick commercial break. Open a new tab in your web browser and go to www.nrdc.org. And there you'll find a tab at the top called Issues. And if you click on that, go to Water. Then you'll scroll down and see a section called Climate Change, Water, and Risk. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Steve about uh, a new report that they have created that will help uh, states and help uh, citizens in every state understand where their state is in terms of preparedness for these water-related changes due to climate change that we can expect to see. And we're going to get into the nitty-gritty on that. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? 
Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Sylvata alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us because we're talking about a topic that is very, very much a part of current events. We've been hearing this story all summer long about the drought that has hit every corner of our country. I mean, there's really very uh, little of our nation this this summer that was not affected by the drought. And even those who were fortunate enough to live in areas that were completely uh, unaffected by the drought will feel the impact when it comes to uh, some of the, the products and some of the businesses that provide services and food and all the things that uh, we all need and that we all purchase uh, that were impacted by the drought. Our guest today is Steve Fleshley. He is the Director of Water and Climate for the Natural Resources Defense Council. And we're talking with him today about this summer's drought, but maybe even more importantly, what we can reasonably expect to happen to the drought scenario and some other water-related climate changes as uh, the years go on and how we can be ready for that, how we can be drought resilient um, at the state, local, and individual level. So I'm really excited to go through this with Steve, but I want to kind of go back to, to ground zero. Let's have a little middle school science lesson here, Steve. Give us uh, sort of the Reader's Digest version of the water cycle here. What causes a drought to occur? Well, the, the definition of drought varies really um, because what constitutes a drought in one place may not be considered a drought somewhere else. So, for example, if you live in the desert and you don't have rain for a couple days, that's probably to be expected. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you live in a tropical region and you don't have, a, have rain for a few days, that might be considered a drought. So, generally speaking, a drought occurs 
when there is a lack of expected precipitation over an extended period of time, mm-hmm. depending on the, what your location is. Right. So that it, it's relevant, basically. Yes. Yeah, it's relative. Relative, yes, that's right. Now, can water managers, and we have them you know, in every water zone across America, can they predict when a drought will occur by measuring um, evapotranspiration rates? Well, it, drought occurs as a result of many different variables, so it's really difficult to predict drought just on one variable like evapotranspiration. Um, it depends on the ability to accurately forecast things like temperature and precipitation, which are influenced by larger-scale phenomena, including things like El Nino and La Nina. Um, so successfully predicting drought is contingent on us understanding the relationship between these large-scale processes and what happens at a more local or regional level. There are several things that water managers can use to measure drought and make decisions about drought. These include things like the percent of normal precipitation that they're experiencing, um, things that they call the Palmer Drought Severity Index, which takes into account precipitation and temperature and soil moisture, um, to name a few things. So it's really a combination of these types of factors that allow us to understand whether we're in a drought um, and whether we might experience a drought in the future. Mm-hmm. And how, I, I'm not sure if this is something that, that you would know or something that you could opine on, but um, our, our water managers, you know, are, are going to have various levels of, of training and educational background across the country. I mean, do we, uh, how do we ensure that our water managers are well-versed on those things? Are they pretty well-versed on these types of issues? And um, do we have good water management in place in the U.S. for drought conditions like this? Well, it it does, unfortunately, vary place to place. Um, You know, in some places, systems are fairly sophisticated, and they've done planning for various different scenarios. Uh, They might have considered an extreme risk scenario or um, or not. Um, there are places that have what they might call a drought of record. Um, so they might look at historical drought records and say, okay, this is what we need to plan around. Unfortunately, what we're saying is the historical record might not be sufficient to predict what's going to happen in the future. So, for example, in Texas, uh, they based their planning on the drought of the 1950s, and it was about a six-year drought that was rather severe. Mm-hmm. Um, but they say, as we look forward, we can plan our water policies around the drought of the 1950s. And they say, if climate change does have a significant impact, when we experience a worse drought or when we create a new drought of record, then we can change our policies. And our point in response to that is, well, you might be five or six years into a horrible drought before you realize that you're in a new drought of record. And so we think it's important for water managers to consider um, not just the the drought of record, um, but what some of these climate models and projections might show for more extreme drought uh, in the future. We'll talk about some of those um, those models and what climate change uh, might do to the intensity or frequency of droughts in the U.S. I mean, how might climate change impact uh, what we're what we're likely to see in the future? What can we reasonably predict? Yeah, well, 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 science tells us that in many parts of the U.S., droughts are likely to become more severe and more frequent over the course of the 21st century because of climate change. And in particular places like the Southwest, um, 
could see longer and more severe drought, but also other places, the southeast in particular, um, could see some problems. And we did a study about a year and a half ago, and we looked at all counties in the United States, and what we found was more than one-third of all counties in the lower 48, um, about 1,400 counties, could face higher risks of water shortages by mid-century as a result of climate change. A lot of that, again, in the southwest, but in the southeast, Florida, um, Georgia, Alabama, Arkansas, um, all the way to the Midwest, Nebraska, Kansas, um, could see more extreme drought conditions and more severe water supply shortage challenges um, as a result of climate change. And unfortunately, you know, the droughts that we're seeing now, because of this expectation that we might see more severe and extreme drought, this could really be a new normal for us in terms of how our climate operates. Steve, can you spend some time explaining why that's the case? I mean, you know, it, it's pretty easy to find reports on climate change that, that you know, conclude that we'll see more snow in some areas and that um, polar bears will not have homes and uh, fish will die. And, and what I think sometimes is lacking for the general public is why? What? How will climate change create more droughts? You know, we hear that climate change might create more hurricanes. So, how exactly will climate change create more drought? Right. I, it's, it's a great question. It's a great question. And and drought, as you noted, is not the only potential impact from climate change. You know, vis-a-vis water resources, we could see mm-hmm. more frequent and intense storms. Mm-hmm. And so, people hear that and they say, "Wait, if it's going to rain harder and more intensely." <laughs> How can we then have drought? And what happens is, is the energy in the system, because of the higher temperatures, allows more water to be held in the air. And so when it's held there, um, you can experience drought. But when it releases, it's going to be more intense because of that increased energy. And so some places may suffer from the curse of too much water because of flooding and because of things like sea level rise. Some places might suffer the curse of too little water because of drought and some of these shifting climate patterns um, and also the period of time between these storm events. And then some places might experience both a curse of too much water and not enough water. And on our website, um, at the site you told the listeners about, if you go and you click on your state, you can see what the risks are um, associated with climate change in those areas. And then you can also, as we'll discuss, see what some of the readiness activities and preparations are being undertaken in those states. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I tweet uh, articles from mainstream media like the Associated Press and Thomson Reuters. And so I've also been tweeting a lot of articles, not just related to the drought, but also related to some of the weather predictions coming out of this extremely quick melting of the Arctic Circle and how some scientists are predicting some changes to the jet stream. And and anybody who's ever watched the nightly news and has seen, uh, you know, the, the weather predicted by any meteorologist knows that the jet stream plays a huge role in U.S. weather. And should there be changes to the jet stream as a result of, you know, the, the, the jet stream kind of whips over Siberia and comes down through the U.S. Um, from the north. And if there should be a, a real shift there, that in and of itself could bring some some 
weather changes that could be very different than what we've seen in the past. I'd like for you to talk about some of the other water-related problems that may occur in terms of climate change. You alluded to them a little bit, but talk more about some of the changes we might see. Sure. So we've we've talked about drought. We've talked a little bit about more frequent and intense storm events, which could lead to increased flooding um, along our riverways. Um, We've talked about water supply challenges as a result of drought, but also just a result of perhaps uh, decreased precipitation or increased evapotranspiration, which could could lead us to less water availability. the, the snowpack issue is a very interesting one that you alluded to, and the notion that we might see more frequent and intense snowstorms, but the snowpack could occur, could melt earlier in the season, mm-hmm. and so it could change the timing of runoff um, in our watersheds. And instead of allowing snowpack to remain, you know, through summer or late spring into summer, um, if snow melts earlier in the season or if more water falls as rain instead of snow, um, that can change the hydraulic cycle in our watershed and we might not have water available uh, in the watershed late in the summertime when we, when we need it the most. There are other challenges associated with sea level rise um, from, the, from the melting of the ice caps um, but also from thermal expansion of the oceans where our coastlines um, Sea level could rise between 7 and 70 inches over the next 50, 60 years, mm. um, and that could cause inundation and flooding. It also can cause saltwater intrusion to get into our drinking water aquifers. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of freshwater aquifers just inland from the coast um, that are protected um, from saltwater intrusion, but as the sea level rises, that saltwater can migrate into those freshwater sources. So we need to be concerned about those impacts as well. And then finally, there's, there's impacts on aquatic species, um, particularly associated with temperature increases and cold water fisheries that might be impacted um, as water temperatures change. Those cold water fisheries um, may not be supported by warmer waters. Well, at, at first blush, this paints a grim picture, but I think um, that what we're going to be talking about in the next segment after we come back from commercial will cheer everybody up. We are not helpless as the human race. If science can help us predict that these things are uh, likely or probable to occur, we can get ready for it. We can be resilient and we can adapt and, uh, and we can be smart about how we go into the next few years of planning for these events. So we're going to be talking with Steve about that when we come back from commercial. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. 
Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to Energy Medicine and Optimal Health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about this year's drought in the U.S., some of the uh, human impacts and some of the ramifications of that drought. But moreover, we've been talking about how climate change may ap- actually increase the likelihood, the intensity, the frequency of droughts in the future. We're going to be spending the next segment talking about how we can get ready for that and some of the things that um, government can do and individuals can do to get ready and be more resilient for these droughts so that uh, we don't feel helpless, that we continue to thrive um, even under these difficult conditions. Sometimes when I go around the country and I speak on things like uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and other uh, things that will help perhaps mitigate climate change, Steve, uh, I hear from the most fatalistic folks and they say, hey, you know, we've already passed the tipping point. Climate change is happening you know, all these mitigation strategies are not going to help us. We are going to experience, we are already experiencing climate change. But I want to ask you, do you think that it's too late to arrest the progression of climate change? Should we still be working on mitigation strategy? Or is it just time to accept the inevitable and start focusing on adaptations? That's a great question. And I absolutely believe we still need to focus on both. We have to focus on both. We must reduce our carbon pollution and our contribution to this problem. Um, And we can do that. Um, At the same time, we must prepare uh, for those worst effects of climate change that we maybe can't reduce by reducing our carbon pollution. And so we should focus on reduction of pollution, 
and carbon pollution in particular, and we should focus on adapting and preparing. And a lot of the strategies that we'll talk about um, related to preparedness activities and adapting to climate change, a lot of them are really no-regret strategies. They provide benefits for us no matter what happens in the future. So they're just good common-sense measures that we should be undertaking anyway. What do you mean by no-regret strategies? Well, so... You know the the projections about climate change and its impact. There are some variability. There is some variability in projections in terms of things like sea level rise, in terms of things like uh, increased um, storm events and precipitation and flooding and drought. And if we undertake certain measures like water use efficiency, if we implement things like green infrastructure and the capture of rainwater and reusing that water, reusing wastewater, there's no downside to doing that sort of thing. If, if we are able to prevent the worst impacts of climate change by reducing carbon pollution, doing these other things to help prepare for the worst effects of climate change will still benefit us economically, still benefit us environmentally, still be good things for us to be undertaking. Mm-hmm. I gotcha. Well, let's talk about the recent report that the NRDC has released. It profiles the extent to which U.S. states are prepared to deal with water-related impacts of climate change. And I'd like to, before we dive into the findings, I'd like to know what exactly you evaluated for this study and what was the process for gathering the data? Sure. Well, it took us a whole year um, to, to do this study. Um, myself and, and one of my staff um, worked on it quite extensively. And what we did was we looked and we said, okay, we've got 50 states, um, and what are they doing to prepare for climate change, in particular with relation to water and the, the possible impacts of climate change to our water resources? And so what we did is we looked at Every state, we did an in-depth analysis of every water plan at the state level um, in all 50 states. And we looked, we looked cross-agency, um, but it had to be at a state level. And we said, what is the state doing and how are they talking about climate change and water? Are they making a connection at all between the two? Um, and are they p- planning for the impacts that climate change could have on our water resources. So we compiled all that information and then we lay it all out and we basically ranked the states based on, relatively speaking, who's doing the most and who's just not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even the best states have more that they can do, but we wanted to make this relative comparison so people could understand, yes, there are some states that are doing more than others and are doing a better job in considering climate change in their water-related planning documents. Okay. And since the recent drought is still very much on people's minds, what are some of the best examples of states that you would deem to be drought resilient? How can a state prepare well to thrive under drought conditions? Well, so so our our analysis really looked well beyond drought. It looked at all the water-related impacts, but in terms of the states where where we would have said, okay, this is good in terms of drought preparedness. They would have, one, understood um, and assessed uh, the implications that climate change would have on drought in the state, um, as opposed to, for example, the Texas example that I gave, where they're simply ignoring those impacts and saying we're going to plan around the 1950s drought. So they would look at and say, okay, is climate change expected to 
make the drought situation worse? And if so, what steps can we take to address those? And some of those steps would be, you know, in, in particular, water use efficiency. How can we use water more effectively? How can we conserve water so we don't have to use it? Um, how can we reuse water that's already been re used? You know, how can we recycle water, basically? Um, and so we looked across the board on that sort of um, criteria. And California and Colorado are probably two good examples of states that have looked at drought and climate change um, and how they might prepare. Mm -hmm. Now, Colorado has a long way to go on a number of the other categories, um, but that's one area where they had at least considered uh, climate change and its impact on water availability. Mm -hmm. And when you speak of some of these you know, states that are a little bit relatively further out in front on their planning. When it comes to drought planning, um, do they have programs in place that sort of, I don't want to say ration water, but, um, you know, spend a good deal of time, whether they're in a drought year or not, on water efficiency and water conservation? Or are their plans um, something that get tripped into action once a drought occurs? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, there are some where they will just have conservation goals regardless um, of whether there's a drought in effect or not. And we've seen in California that I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, you know, switching over to low-flow toilets and low-flow showerheads. Uh, those sorts of things are just good practices that California has undertaken, um, you know, regardless of whether there's a drought or not. Um, we're seeing movement towards xeriscaping and more natural landscaping. Um, Las Vegas, you know, not a state, um, and the state of Nevada did poorly in our report, but Las Vegas has spent an enormous amount of money um, paying people to convert their lawns um, from green lawns to a xeriscape system um, to more natural drought-resistant desert plants um, and even AstroTurf in, in, in many places. They spent over $100 million to convert lawns there. And so that's a drought-resistant strategy that you don't have to be in a drought to benefit from. Um, and that's, you know, that's the type of thinking we like to see. But then there are some triggers in some of these places where if, if, um, if water supplies get to a certain level, it might trigger additional activities and, and curtailment of use. And that's, you know, that's a good backstop measure, but you've got to have these other ones in place um, sort of as a, as a matter of course right. um, to, to save water. Absolutely. Kind of just, a, you know, uh, becomes a state of living, you know, a culture yeah. of conservation. What are some of the most troubling shortcomings in states that you've observed? Which states are lagging behind and um, which ones kind of really catch your attention as, well, boy, they are grossly unprepared for what we can see is going to be a tough future? Yeah, well, there's, there's, um, there's about 12 states that we found that were really lacking in their planning. And there were, oh, six states that hadn't done anything in terms of the carbon pollution reduction strategies or the preparation or adaptation for climate impacts. Um, those states would be Alabama, Indiana, Kansas, North Dakota, Ohio, South Dakota, um, all lagging far behind in terms of whether they're even recognizing climate change as a possibility. Uh, Texas falls in the worst category as well. Texas categorizes um, climate change, they call it an ambiguous 
risk. And they rank it with terrorism and natural disasters as something that they don't know what the implications could be, so therefore they're not going to plan seriously around the issue. And yet I would respond and say, we know terrorism is, is a risk, and yet we plan and try mm -hmm. to prevent terrorist activities, and yet for some reason Texas is unwilling to take climate change seriously at a state level. There are um, a lot of local governments like Austin um, and others that are taking it seriously and are trying to do uh, the right thing, but at the state level, uh, they're falling behind as well. Besides actually coming right out and saying, we accept climate change is coming and, you know, they use that kind of verbiage in their water plans. What other shortcomings do they, do some of these states that are lagging behind have in terms of uh, what's absent from their water plans? Yeah. Now, some of the worst states in terms of climate change, we did recognize for doing some smart things that if they did it in the context of climate change could prove even more beneficial. So some of those places do have policies on, uh, say, green infrastructure and the opportunity um, to try to mimic Mother Nature a little bit more and capture water and reuse water. Um, mm -hmm. And some have um, some marginal drought planning activities. Um, Texas does have some. Utah does have some. Um, Kansas does have some uh, where they have some discussion of it. They just don't put it in the context of things could be different in the future and we need to plan around that. They say, look, drought is a threat. Um, let's do what we've been doing. And, and again, some of these places, you know, they make projections on what the drought impacts could be. But um, as we've seen this year, those those projections were woefully inadequate. Mm -hmm. Because as you mentioned previously, the past doesn't necessarily reflect uh, the trends of the future because of climate change. It's, it's right. going to be That's a right. different era. And so, you know, using those models um, won't be necessarily sufficient. We need to create new models based on what we're seeing in terms of rapid change. I mean, and really, in my mind, the most glaring example of this rapid change is the unprecedented melting of the Arctic Circle. I mean, scientists are confounded at this point to provide any um, historical model, you know, any time in the, the recent future or recent past that could have predicted this kind of, of rapid melting. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, much more with Steve and the report that the NRDC put out. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We've been talking during this show about the just significant impact that this year's drought has had and will have on the U.S. And, and I can't help but thinking, though, you know, we've been talking most of the show about how this drought will impact Americans. But the fact is, a lot of the food and a lot of the uh, livestock that we raise that was impacted by the drought and could be affected by future droughts, we export so much of that. There are other countries that are very reliant upon the the fruits of our labor when it comes to our farmland and our our livestock uh, production and you know we we have to be thinking about that as well i mean there's enough global conflict i think we can all agree there already going on but when people are hungry people are thirsty um when people can't get good nutrition that uh that certainly doesn't improve international relations at all and so uh you know i think it's really important for us to think about the the small t- scale uh, ramifications on local areas when they are experiencing a drought. But we've also got to think about the the large-scale sort of macro-level implications of water-related changes when the climate changes around us and how we can prepare for that so that we can hopefully uh, mitigate the worst impacts and continue to thrive as a human race um, when it comes to uh, some of the things that we have to have to survive, like water and food. Well, Steve, we've been talking about the Natural Resources Defense Council report that rates states' preparedness for water-related climate change. And I'm just wondering if our listeners get out on your website, nrdc.org, and they find that their state is lagging behind when it comes to preparedness, what can they do? Yeah, there's, there's certainly a lot of things they can do. And I think the most important thing is to get engaged um, and, and talk to your state officials in particular and say, why, why is our state lagging behind? Why is the state government not taking this issue more seriously by analyzing the threats um, and, and developing a plan to address those threats? So I would say that's probably the first thing that folks can do is to speak out 
um, and, and raise this issue with elected officials. They can also do things right in their local community, and I think that's, that's another really important issue is, you know, climate change is going to be felt most profoundly at a local level, um, and people can take actions to help, you know, from reducing their carbon pollution um, and their, their emissions um, to helping conserve water, um, using promoting green infrastructure in local communities and really encouraging their local officials um, to take action and getting together with their neighbors um, to ensure the local communities are, are protecting themselves from these threats. Well, you know, you mentioned a few cities uh, in the previous segment that have done a great job of addressing this issue of climate change, how their local area might be impacted by it. Can you give us a few case studies? Talk about some of the outstanding city governments across America that, with or without the support of their state government and, and water planning uh, agencies, that are they're doing their job well. Yeah, so in addition to the state analysis that we did prior to that, we did an analysis of cities across the United States and how they might be preparing for the climate-related impacts, uh, the water-related impacts of climate change. Uh, we looked at a dozen cities. Um, the reason we chose a dozen, unfortunately, we, was because that was about as many cities as we could find that were actually taking really strong measures or meaningful steps to plan for of these water-related impacts, um, and those are on that same website page where people can click on there, and they can see their local cities um, or nearby cities um, and what they might be doing. Some examples of the best performing, and this is, again, all relatively speaking. All of these can do could do more, um, but Chicago has done a laudable job. New York City, um, Norfolk, Virginia, which is going to suffer um, enormous problems associated with sea level rise has been taking this issue very seriously. Seattle, Washington um, has done a really good job of, of looking at the water-related impacts uh, of climate change. And, and Seattle is really sort of one of the best programs in terms of uh, water use efficiency around the country. Um, and so they really deserve um, applause for that. They've adopted a long-term water-saving goal um, many years ago, and they've really significantly invested in water efficiency, and they've integrated their work across many, many areas that we look at in terms of whether things are, are being undertaken in a serious manager, man, manner. They're looking at customer incentives, consumer education, pricing policies to make sure that water is priced adequately, and they're looking at codes and standards for how um, um, utilities operate, how you know, how efficient we are in our use of water. Um, so they stand out as a really good example. In addition, um, City of Los Angeles and New York City have really shown impressive reductions in water consumption over the last couple of years. And again, not necessarily related to climate change, but really undertaking meaningful measures um, on water efficiency. Uh, San Antonio and Austin deserve recognition for supporting water efficiency research and and trying to understand the science behind how we can use water more effectively. Oakland, the East Bay Municipal Water District, San Antonio, Denver, Las Vegas, and Tampa all deserve credit on the research side as well. You know, I'm, I'd be interested in hearing about a non-coastal city like Chicago. What have they done? Let's talk about a heartland city. What have they done to stand out? Yeah, so, I mean, Chicago has a planning process to address climate change broadly, and they look at it and say, okay, wh what are the impacts on our city from climate change, from temperature-related impacts and the human health effects of um, more 
um, hot weather days where the elderly might be at risk to, okay, what are the water-related impacts? Now, Chicago does have the Great Lakes, and so they're in a little bit better situation um, than some of these other locations, um, and that's good news. But in terms of looking at um, flooding, uh, increased rain events, storm events, they take that stuff into consideration and say, okay, are we going to face any threats in this vein? They look at increased annual precipitation, more frequent storms and flooding, and those are sort of the three areas where they've done a risk assessment and said, okay, those are the areas we need to plan around, we need to think about. And in particular, Chicago has done a good job on green infrastructure. Um, They could do more. Philadelphia is probably the best city in the country on green infrastructure deployment. And that's, again, the idea of mimicking Mother Nature, trying to capture this rainwater, and instead of allowing it to create flooding problems, using it as a resource. And so things like green roofs, rain gardens, uh, rain barrels, Chicago is showing leadership on that issue. We have just a, a, about a minute and a half left. Let's talk for a minute about rural America. For those who aren't farmers but just like living out in the country, they don't have a highly centralized government planning capacity and uh, an urban government structure. What can rural Americans do to prepare for water-related climate change? Yeah, and you're right. There might not be the same structure, um, but certainly there are community organizations and groups that gather in those rural communities. Um, there might be um, the collective of the farmers that gather, um, but there is some sort of structure um, typically in these in these areas, and and they can get together in the same manner that a municipal government would get together and say, look, what threats are we facing? You know, is it going to be a water supply shortage challenge that we face? Is it going to be a flooding challenge that we face? And how can we collectively make sure that we're thinking about these impacts on our communities? Um, you know, even if you're out in the middle of nowhere, chances are you still have some sort of community that you engage with. Um, mm-hmm. And if you don't, um, you can think about these things for yourself and say, okay, where's my water coming from? What's my water supply? Is my well uh, deep enough and sufficient enough to address these problems? Can I capture rainwater on site? Can I use water more effectively and more more efficiently on site to prepare for these challenges? Absolutely. Well, Steve, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks to all of our listeners for joining us as well. This is important stuff, and it's something that, like I said, we don't have to be helpless. We don't have to wait for it to happen to us. We can get out in front of these issues, plan accordingly, and uh, and continue to thrive. And that's our choice. Well, thanks so much for joining us on Go Green Radio this week. Until we're back on the air, same time, same place next week, do something in your life to go green and have a wonderful week. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.